1: It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors.
2: We are gathered here on hallowed ground. His heads bowed down, we'll gather here on hallowed ground.
3: Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If you haven't heard the show before, uh, welcome aboard. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. As far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. And we, ha- we just wrapped up our seminars this past week. We are in you know, Brooklyn, Queens and Staten Island. And there was one question came up, Michael, what was the question? It was a little bit different.
4: Yeah, this was a different one. Um, Someone in the audience asked, my uncle is a priest. Should he do estate planning? A lot depends.
3: Yes, he should, no matter what. Now, and some people really don't understand this, but a, a lot of the diocesan priests do not have a vow of poverty. And may have substantial assets in their name when, you know, when they they pass away. So obviously those priests, again, there's no vow of poverty. They can work at jobs. They can uh, save money, invest money. Sometimes parishioners occasionally leave money and they can invest it. So, yeah, in that case you should have a will. Obviously, probably uh, most priests don't have any children. So you know, who's gonna be in charge, what's gonna be in charge. Uh, you know, I remember one bishop almost mandated that every priest do a will just to avoid confusion within the, the the diocese. Now on the other side, let's say like our friend Father Paul, Father Paul has a vow of poverty and he is not allowed to accumulate substantial or any assets in his name alone. Everything he does goes for the benefit of the Capuchin order. So he still should probably have a will to take care of his odds and ends. Some priests, of course, in their will, they want to leave their vestments to somebody. They want to make arrangements for who's going to say their funeral mass, uh, what funeral director is going to do the make the arrangements, what priest they want, you know, to say the, the homily at the mass. So, yeah, it, it it really comes down to it. Everybody should have a will no matter what but a lot of people again don't realize or understand it a diocesan priest does not take a vow of poverty so a diocesan priest let's say in the brooklyn diocese or whatever they can they can accumulate assets they can save they can invest their money they can inherit from their parents and hopefully do the right thing a priest like father paul who has a vow of poverty which means all the money he earns as a medical doctor or as a you know, for as an artist or whatever, it has to be turned over, you know, to his order. Now he gets a stipend or whatever, to, but it's, it's very minimal for a person of his education. And you know, that's you got to admire people like that. They're willing to sacrifice their lives, you know, for God. Now we had an interesting day today here at the office, and this show's being taped. But Viewpoint by Dennis Quaid came in to tape some of the. Some of our clients and some of our attorneys in, in the office. It was kind of interesting. And I really don't know that much about Viewpoint. Beth, do you?
5: I really don't either. Um, it's my understanding. It's it's a show. Dennis Quaid introduces it. And it's each show is different. And it highlights usually a, a business. Um, sometimes it's obscure, sometimes it's an everyday thing, like our business isn't obscure, you know, it's estate planning, so that's something that everyone, you know, is is thinking about. Um, but I don't, there's so many different places, you know, streaming and, you know, cable and Dish and everything, it, I believe it started on PBS but I tell you what, we'll find out more about it and we'll talk about it, you know, when it's coming up. But we had a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and when it's
3: aired on PBS, we'll let you guys know. Absolutely. Not, you hear everything here anyway, but
5: <laughs> you might be wanting to turn in and, and see us on television. Oh my goodness. Now, one of the
3: reasons I was inclined to say yes to this was that Dennis Quaid, I, you know, a lot of his films, I, I really enjoyed his performance in a lot of films. You know, for instance, the, the first movie I remember him in was The Long Riders. And what I liked about that film, what was interesting about that film, they had a lot of brothers playing brothers. Like the Keech brothers were playing the James brothers. The Carradine brothers were playing the, playing the younger brothers. And, I, you know, I can't recall the name of uh, Randy and Dennis Quaid, what brothers they played. There were lesser figures in the you know, Jesse James story.
5: Oh, that's right. They were, oh, I should know that name, too. Were they the Millers?
3: Yeah, they might have been the Millers or whatever, but okay. they were, you know, and that was interesting about that film, you know, that brothers were playing brothers, including the the Ford brothers at the end. Right. You know, so It, that, it
5: was very, because, you know, there's a resemblance between the brothers. It was very good. I mean, uh, that was you know it was different in the time you you know you had music original instruments old music not not newer music with it and it was oh you know it was a little uh hard around the edges but it, i liked it different like i say different it felt real
3: yeah and of course frequency it's got to be one of our favorite movies because among other things it centers upon the 1969
6: World Series,
3: and of course, on this show, we've had a lot of the 1969 Mets on that's this right show up. over the that's years. Right. We, we were talking about Ron Ron Hunt, who was not in 1969; he was in the early 60s. And one of the mistakes the Mets probably made was trading him away, but oh.
5: that's another
3: that's another question. From
5: but right again, it's day. a
3: time travel thing, and and I think the one character is in the 1980s, and the other character is 1969, and, and through it's a short a father's wave, son, right? right? And through a shortwave radio, they're talking, but the guy in 1980s is telling his father in 1969 what happens in the World Series, and it gets the father off a murder charge. It's fun. <laughs> it, it's a, it is it's great a funny movie. Yeah, and of yep. course, time travel. It's it's one of the problems you always have with time travel. Do you, you can you change events in the past, and what's their effect on events in the future?
5: And that so was very cool the way they did it because yeah. the. I don't wanna maybe if you haven't seen it, watch it because it's a family friendly film. But um
3: it talks about rape and murder too.
5: Well, yeah, but it's it's positive. It's got a wonderful <laughs> positive ending and um and the and because the father and the son are able to work together long distance through this radio, they're able to to save a person's life, and um, and you see the bad guy, you see what happens, like Mike's saying, you see what happens to the bad guy as things in the past happen, then like the guy, what did he lose an arm or something? I, but I loved it, because the bad guy gets what he deserves.
3: Yeah, and of course there were other things he played, you know, we love westerns, so Dennis Quaid played. Uh, Sam Houston in the Alamo, the recent one, not the John Wayne And a very
5: good Sam Houston. Yeah, Yeah.
3: right. Although I don't know where he got the tri-cornered hat from. That's okay. You know, it's interesting. I'm sure there's some (laughs) historical thing from it. And, of course, the other Western that you might remember him from is Wyatt Earp. He played Doc Holliday, which, you know, obviously at the same time, Tombstone came out. And you have Val Kimmler playing a very flamboyant. Doc Holliday, which I think entertained us all. Right. And it was a great performance. I think Harry Carey Jr. said it should have been nominated for an Academy Award. But Westerns usually don't get those nominations. I know, I know. But...
5: But as you're saying, you thought that Dennis maybe Dennis was
3: probably a lot closer to... To reality. <laughs> to w- the real Doc Holliday, a mean, nasty drunk. That he was, you know, a lot
4: closer than the flamboyant Val Kilmer. Oh, I guess history will say it. You yeah. know. That, and, you that, know, for, that, for me, Dennis Quaid, growing up, the first thing I ever saw him in was Dragonheart, where he was the, the dragon slayer turned dragon friend. And, you yeah, know, that's a great movie with a great cast. Uh, great entertainment. You talk about. I love that you one, know, too. And, uh, You've got Sean Connery voicing the dragon.
5: Right. You've right. got
4: David Thewlis as the evil king, right. and Pete Postlewaite as the monk following them around. I mean, it's a it's a great cast and a a really good product of the '90s. So,
5: no, that I loved that one too. You know,
3: speaking of Doc Holliday's Michael, your fa- your fellow Xavier alum, he played Doc Holliday to... U. O'Brien's Wyatt Earp in the TV series.
5: Oh, what was the guy's name?
3: Douglas Fowley. That's Douglas right, yeah, Fowley right. was the. He was he was Doc uh, Holliday, to U. O'Brien's Wyatt Earp. Okay.
5: <laughs> it's a small world. <laughs> yeah, well.
3: <laughs> and I mean, he played more in the the vein of uh, Dennis Quaid than he did in South Wilmer okay. or whatever. But
5: and then there's. My darling Clementine, oh, which
3: that doesn't make any sense at all. it's no. sure as Doc Holliday.
5: <laughs> no, it doesn't.
3: <laughs> Especially when they turn him from a dentist to a doctor and whatever.
5: It's it's strange art.
3: Yeah, but it's it's, it's a great movie. It's just yeah, they should yeah. change the names.
5: Yeah. Around any other Dennis Quaid movie, Michael, the sci-fi one.
4: Oh, Pandorum. That was an interesting one.
5: That was that was actually scary.
4: Yeah, no, 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 that was a...
5: A psychological scary yeah, thing. Yeah,
4: yeah. So, I don't know how we get on. And he's got a new one coming up on Reagan, so that should oh, be interesting. When where is he's going to be playing Reagan.
5: How, is it it's on end a, of this
4: year, I think. What? It's not out yet. Is it a so, channel, or so It's is in it post-production. A, no, yeah, it's in post-production. <clears throat> I don't know where it's going to be coming out. Okay, but, okay. Yeah. Plus, he's been trying to get Hollywood out of Hollywood, so
3: to speak, or movie yeah, making out of yeah. Hollywood. So, you know, because the, 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 the taxes and the restrictions are so oppressive yeah. in Hollywood that maybe these people should be going to Texas or other states like that.
5: Yeah, so, make some more westerns. Yeah. And that's what well, we need.
3: Always need more. Barry Corbin said that. And I hope, that's you, right. You know, tell everybody to write in and tell them to make we more need westerns. We more
5: westerns.
3: And that's one of the things Barry Corbin and uh, Wilford Brimley said, that it's expensive to make westerns now. Because you don't have guys who could drive wagons. Oh. Yeah. Um, you know, it used to be you'd go on a lot and there'd be 10 st- stunt guys who could drive a wagon and, uh, ride a horse and fall off a horse. And those guys don't, at least that's what they said. I, I find it hard to believe
5: but those guy guys don't this, exist. The strange voice. And, and they, and he drove the stagecoach. Oh my goodness, Andy Devine. Andy Devine, I think he knew how to do that. I have to look that up, but I think yeah. He my was...
3: understanding is is because that's why Ward Bond didn't get the part because Ward Bond couldn't uh, okay. obviously would have been a totally different part, but Ward Ward Bond couldn't drive
4: a six. Yeah,
5: or nah, that's. Six oh, you orders? know,
4: you know, what we almost forgot what the remake of Flight of the Phoenix.
5: Oh, that's right. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't the, the original, the but, one, right, but I think they, it almost
4: should be forgotten.
5: No, don't say that. Look, people are making efforts at doing some. It was a. But it was a. They changed the. It was strange. Mm-hmm. But anyway, no. But I liked Dennis Quaid. I've liked most of his movies. It's it's like somebody that's got a good heart,
4: you know. Well, he never detracts from anything he's in.
5: No. No, and somehow he, he does make them come alive. I mean, that, that dragon guy. Mm-hmm. Oh, he! I felt so sorry <laughs> for him. Oh, my goodness.
3: All right, I think maybe it's time for us to take a break. Uh, this year's an election year again, and we're going to be talking to an old friend of ours, Marvin Jeff Jeffcoat. I've known Marvin for years from the Catholic War veterans, and he's done a little work for our office. He's now a lawyer in California, but he's going to be working He's working to get into the bar here in New York, and he's running for city council, and he can tell you about his race, and he's a good man. And if you live in his area, please vote for him. Your vote will be well served.
4: Thank you so much for being with us today.
2: How can I protect my family if something happens to me?
5: What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa.
7: If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888 888- And you could be on your way to a better retirement Frank Melia NMLS number 62591 Contour Mortgage Corporation NMLS number 34384 990 Stewart Avenue Suite 660 Garden City, New York 11530 Licensed Mortgage Banker New York State Department of Financial Services
1: Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike.
3: Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Listen again. This year is an election year. All the city council seats are up for grabs, and you know we've made a lot of progress in, in the last couple of years in the city council, and hopefully we're going to continue to be making progress. And we have one of the candidates, an old friend of the show, Marvin Jeffcoat. Welcome to Connor's Corner
6: thanks mike how are you
3: okay well we're doing okay so where where is your city council district what where do you live and and where are you running
6: i live in woodside and uh, i'm running in uh, the 26th council district woodside sunnyside long island city and a little bit of astoria
3: okay now listen you're pretty set in life why why did you decide to run
6: well, I'm running because I want to give my kids the American dream that my parents left to me. And I see the country and the city and the state moving in the wrong direction. And actually, I'm afraid because the Democrats, socialists are in control of the city and they're running everything into the ground.
3: Yeah, well, not only that, I mean, we're taping today on October 13th. Have there been demonstrations that you've heard of today so far?
6: Well, we left the House kind of early this morning. Um, but you know there are several demonstrations scheduled throughout the city, and uh, the head of the former head of Hamas has made a threat for worldwide jihad and you know you have a city state and federal government that has systematically disarmed a citizen and I, I bring that up because it 's critical to understand that an armed citizenry is a free citizenry. There was an Israeli IDF officer that was able to fend off several Hamas terrorists armed with automatic weapons with just his sidearm, a pistol. Um, But here in New York City, you know, even after SCOTUS clarified that we have a right to keep and bear arms in the streets, Kathy Hochul and uh, Letitia James, they deny us that right in violation of the uh, Constitution and in violation of what the Supreme Court has said. So, you know, in in my opinion, you have criminal rogues that are running uh, the show and they're endangering everybody, people don't realize, but the police can't protect every citizen and they're not charged with doing that. Protection is up to the individual, but Hochul and her ilk would deny us that in the wake of possible terrorist attacks. So it's a very fearful time in New York and that's it's one of the things I want to correct. You know, they, they summoned all the NYPD officers in and I think that was the right call. But they're going to provide some protection for some synagogues, and they're going to guard police precincts. But what about the individual citizen? None of us are empowered with the Second Amendment to protect ourselves, as it should be.
3: Yeah. Well, of course, the Second Amendment's not the only—but it's, it's coming to the fore right now because you saw so many people tragically massacred, you know. And it, some people say, well, it can happen here, but it could happen here. I mean, September 11th is not that far behind us.
6: Absolutely. Israel just experienced it September 11th. And, you know, the sad thing is you already have people denying what happened. I mean, people were denying the Holocaust just a few years back. But you have these college professors and, and the people on the left run by the Democrat socialists, the, the global socialists. They're already denying the Holocaust and they're threatening Bibi Netanyahu with international war crimes tribunals when nobody's going after Hamas. And it's it's sad because they always go after the good side and they say, well, you should exercise more restraint. How do you exercise restraint with someone that's willing to die to be able to cut off the head of a baby, an innocent baby that's done nothing to anyone in this world? Um, So, you know, it's a a very troubling time. And here at home, you know, we have more pressing issues. Uh, Of course, there's the public safety issue. There's the... uh, education issue and and uh, job security, but on on the uh, public safety you know it 's not just the fact that violent crime is up, but you have things like rat harborage being created by these um, sidewalk cafes. You have DEP not cleaning out catch basins like my opponent Julie Wan said they did. I went around the neighborhood, did an informal survey, and you can tell by the debris that these catch basins haven't been cleaned in several years. So, what's it going to take? Another flood where DEP won't open the gates and they'll let it back up into the community and people die. You have Julie Wan calling prostitution sex work, which is a callous cover up for the sex trafficking and, and, and rape that these women experience. I mean, The best thing we could do for them would be to arrest them for prostitution and then remove them from the abuser. And on the other side of that, where's the Department of Health? You have a strain of syphilis being developed from these policies that is resistant to treatment. You have HIV increasing by 35 percent. So where's Julie Wan and the Department of Health? They're busy trying to create more vaccine and mass mandates instead of focusing on the real issue at hand. And then there's the uh, NYCHA housing. I mean, you have people living with asbestos hazards and and all kinds of other things, subhuman. NYCHA is probably the biggest slumlord in the city, and nothing's being done to curtail that. On the education issue, you you have the LGBTQ movement. Fine, be whatever you want to be. Um, I don't want to get in your bedroom, but you don't have a right to indoctrinate our children. And that's exactly what's going on in the public schools. That's got to stop. Um, and the way we deal with that is we make the schools more competitive with um, uh, vouchers for charter schools, homeschooling, and private schools. That way you take that $26,000 a year that it takes to educate a child, and a lot of them graduate illiterate. But anyways, you take that money and you give that to the parents in the form of a voucher and them to make that choice and take the power away from the UFT. And one other thing I would do on uh, education is – I would put the Board of Education's elections on the Board of Elections ballots so that it's open and transparent and people see who's in charge of their child's education. Economic prosperity, people are leaving New York in droves. Nobody wants to uh, invest in New York. You have to look at laws like Local Law 97 and totally eviscerate those. People don't realize if you have a building of 25,000 square feet or more, you're going to be fined. $56,000 a year just to open your doors if you use natural gas appliance. Now, you know, you can argue one way or the other whether electricity is more efficient than natural gas. But I'll tell you this, being in the facility management business, electricity loses a lot of efficiency in transport. A lot of heat's given off. Um, But the, the, the main thing is most electricity, unless you have clean nuclear or uh, hydroelectric like up in Niagara Falls. Most electricity is generated from fossil fuels. So really, what have you done? What you've done is you've set up China and our adversaries to be in a better position because they're going to continue to use petroleum-based products. Their tanks are going to roll and ours are not. Um, But the other thing is you got to look at uh, where our money goes. We need to lower the, the corporate the personal income, and the property tax in New York so that people want to come back and reinvest in New York and create jobs and then will be independent. Right now, Mayor Adams can find money to house what they're calling migrants, and they're really illegal alien invaders. They're pushing Native New Yorkers out of the way. Native New Yorkers that are homeless are being displaced from their shelters. Disabled homeless veterans are being displaced from their shelters. and they But they can come up with money to put migrants illegal aliens in five-star hotels until they can bring them out into the communities. And this is not by mistake. I mean, de Blasio said he was gonna integrate and take the suburbs away from us. So guys like us, you know, we work hard all our lives. We um, establish a place for our families to live in relative safety. And they're gonna take that away from us because they're gonna bring the poverty and the crime and the prostitution and the disease and the violence to us. And um, so I'm running to stop all that. My opponent, she wants the status quo because I guess, you know, they they take care of her and they pay her campaign costs and others.
3: Yeah. You know, tell the audience a little bit about your background, because we've been talking a little bit in a vacuum. But tell them where you've been in your life.
6: Well, I started out in Queens, General a long, long time ago. (laughs) Um, You know, I grew up in foster care in the system. So, my heart goes out to the kids in the foster care system. Um, if they're being abused, I would investigate that because I have a personal stake in that. I'm fortunate enough to have met my foster parents up in Vermont. Um, you know, I spent time in group homes. I went to White Plains High School, graduated high school, and I went in the Army. Um, I started out as a military policeman, and um, eventually, you know, that. That wasn't exciting enough for me, so I became an airborne ranger in the infantry, and uh, I've been stationed all over the world. Um, Fort Bragg, Fort Benning, um, Korea, Saudi Arabia. Well, you're using
3: the the old names right now. You're not using the proper names.
6: Absolutely, because um, I'm not a politically correct kind of guy, and Fort Bragg will always be the home of the infantry. I mean, the airborne to me, whereas Fort Benning is the home of the infantry. I think what was done to our military is an absolute atrocity. I mean, you know, you had some great Southern Civil War generals that fought for what they believed in, and they were on the wrong side of history, but, you know, they were Americans. And at the end of the war, um, General Grant recommended to President Lincoln that we give them... A full and fair pardon and reintegrate them into the country again and heal the country. And unfortunately, what I once thought was a great commander, General uh, General Austin, has done is created divisiveness. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking for me to go back to Fort Bragg and it's called something else. I don't even want to think of what it is. But um, you know that that the, those names were given to those installations for the purpose of bringing our Southern brethren back into the union and everything that Democrats have done, the Democrat socialists has been to divide the country and it's, it's really sad. So yeah, I'm an old school kind of guy. Fort Bragg is the home of the airborne and it's, it's my home. And um, just so folks know, um, Mike, you usually ask this question, but you know, I'm a black Catholic heterosexual male. Um, For those of you of the new generation, that would be, I don't know, he, him and uh uh sis something or another. But um that that's who I am and um you know I I want to get back to a sense of normalcy. Fort Bragg is Fort Bragg, Fort Benning is Fort Benning. And those were great generals, most of them having graduated West Point and being brought back into the fold. So we need something like that again actually. I think renaming those installations back to what they were would go a long way. And um, if any of my airborne brethren um, down in the South are listening to me, I'm sure you would agree. We need to get together and petition um, Secretary Austin and the rest of the uh, woke crowd to restore what we had so we can bring that national sense of unity. Um, We're one country, regardless of the region you come from. And so we need to get back to where we were.
3: Now, I mean, I... Listen, the city council right now, they have practically destroyed the real estate industry in New York City. I mean, if you're a landlord, you can't reinvest in your building. You can't get a return back. The rules about tenants cannot pay their rent and stay there forever. Uh, I mean, I know you're personally involved in that, but do you have a comment on it?
6: Absolutely. I have a holdover tenant, and it's it's really atrocious. It's unfair to the landlord. What I would do is I would abolish the landlord-tenant court. And I would return to the common law, which worked. You know, you have uh, real property law and you have the common law of contracts. A lease is just that, a contract. And at the end of that contract, if you're done, you're done. Um, you know, and they're going to say, oh, well, they're going to put people out into the streets. That's not true. Um, most of these people that are doing this are Section 8 tenants and the city is more than happy to find some other landlord. But, you know, if if, if the lease ends and it doesn't work out, the court should enforce that contract and a landlord is the owner of their property. The tenant has a leasehold, not a property right interest. And that's essentially it's a fifth Amendment's taking clause violation because the state has stepped in and it said, I'm going to act on behalf, which is what the government always does. I'm going to act on behalf of the people I want dependent on me and I'm going to oust the landlord from his property. So what are people going to do? They're going to sell and who's going to buy it up either corporate donors who would donate to the politicians or the state is going to buy it up. And what are you going to have? You're going to have a bunch of housing projects and uh, reservations in the city. You know, uh, Vicky Palladino has, has put up a great fight to preserve her culture and her neighborhood. And um, we need more people like her. And that's what I want to do. I want to preserve Woodside the way she's done Whitestone, because they're going to just come in and totally change the landscape and force people out. Again, like I said, violating the Fifth Amendment. But there's other things like Local Law 97 we talked about. Um, I think it's 84 with the scaffolding. They're coming up up with all of these regulations, and they make it hard. Most people don't realize that most landlords are one- and two-family homeowners that live in the dwelling they rent. And, you know, they're trying to make ends meet, and so they open up their house to rent to people. They provide a decent place to live. And the government violates them and takes away their property. It's a huge problem. So, excuse me, again, I would revert back to the common law and enforce the lease, the contract, um, and not take away a landlord's property the way they're doing.
3: All right. Now, again, Election Day is what, November 7th?
6: Absolutely. Tuesday, November 7th.
3: All right. And there's early voting.
6: Yes. So if you can get out there and vote for Marvin Jeffcoat and every other Republican that's running early so that our votes count. We are uh, we're going to have our last fundraiser of the year at the Jackson Club, 5601 Northern Boulevard, and we're going to be recruiting people. Right now, I have a team of people that are out putting door knockers up, uh, door hangers up, and um, posters, and also I'm recruiting poll watchers because what I want to do is I want to have poll watchers at the poll site so that um, we can make sure that we have a free and fair election. We have uh, we have an app that you can log into prior to going to the poll, and if you observe any irregularities, please just report it. But, you know, we want an honest count. And, you know, after this time, if I lose in an honest election, then I lose and we'll pack it up and go to Florida where I can live free. But <laughs> if we win, we want to bring that freedom here to New York.
3: Ah, uh, You shouldn't move to Florida so quickly. I know it's probably the right advice. And I mean here's one thing and I just want to make a you know comment about taxes. If you're let's say well the, the numbers are going to change slightly the first of the year but let's say for the sake of argument you're got a 10 million dollar estate which may sound like an enormous estate but you know if you own real estate in New York it's really that, that not that much. So if you die a New York state resident and you're single you have a 10 million dollar estate your children pay a million dollars in taxes. You move to Florida, you're a Florida resident, your children pay zero taxes. And that's why we're losing a lot of the people, because if you have $10 million in assets, it's not hard to establish residency in Florida. And we're losing our tax base here because it just doesn't pay to be a New York resident if if you have money. And I mean, the numbers can go up. I mentioned $10 million. Numbers go up. Those taxes go up. So- you know, it's it's about time the New York State, New York City government woke up, and the taxes do drive hardworking people out of the city. But anyway, November seventh. Do you have a a website, Marvin?
6: Absolutely, MarvinJeffcoat.net, MarvinJeffcoat.net, MarvinJeffcoat.net. Hope to see you all out there before November seventh.
3: Thank you for being on
6: Connor's Corner. You're welcome, Mike, and thank you.
3: I'm
5: Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors &
1: Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com.
3: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We're we're reversing our schedule a little bit now. We have one of our attorneys with us, Eugene Krivulitz. And we were talking world events a few minutes ago when when Marvin was talking about politics and so forth. But we also talked about Viewpoint. And and one of the questions Viewpoint brought up is like, when is it too late or too early to plan? And Eugene, you had a good point on it. So where do do a lot of our problems come up? So I I would – Thank you for having me. It's always good to be on the radio show.
8: But I would say there's no such thing as planning too early because the documents that we draft, the plans that we create for our clients can always be amended or changed. There's practically no document that we do that if the client wants to change later on in their life, if they have a change in circumstances, they can't do so. The problems arise when clients come in and do their documents late in their life or don't do them at all. Um, The reason that the problems may arise is that clients tend to create their estate planning when there's some sort of a need for it. And when there's a specific need for it, chances are that they might not be in the best uh, either health um, or have some sort of diminished capacity at that time, which creates an opportunity for anyone who may want to contest their planning or try to invalidate some of those documents for their own selfish reasons, It opens the door for them to come in and either create a very lengthy, expensive uh, legal cases or or um, delay the administration uh, of the estates or the administration of the
3: w- w- trusts or any other documents that are set in place. Like, in other words, if You read a law book or whatever and they talk about capacity to do a will. They say you need very little capacity to do a will and that, you know, if if you have the barest knowledge of your assets and you know who your relatives are, you have the capacity to do a will. You don't really have to be on top of your game. And in theory, you can not have – you could have the capacity to do a will – but not have the capacity to sign a power of attorney in theory. Now, I have never met that person in 40 some years of practicing who could sign a will but who could not sign a power of attorney. But but that's, that's what the law book said. You need the minimum capacity to sign a will. But as a practical matter, if somebody has ammunition and they get some medical records and they just try to exploit them and make mountains out of molehills, sometimes you confuse the triers of fact where maybe you think a person is not competent. And of course, that's your point. The later you wait, the tougher that's going to be. Somebody has a stroke. That doesn't mean they can't do a will, but somebody has a stroke, and then all of a sudden some disgruntled heir brings something in court, and and you can say it as much as anybody, but the problem is if it goes to court, it usually gets settled.
8: Right, because you will be in a situation where nobody's going to take your word for it that the person had capacity. You have to go through sometimes a multi-year process through lengthy discovery procedures um, to show and and, and to prove that uh, the person was competent or disprove the arguments that the objectants will be making. And again, it's time consuming. It's stressful. A lot of our clients um, don't Understand necessarily that even if everything was done legitimately, if the person, and and we would never sign documents if we didn't feel that uh, the client did not have the proper capacity to sign them, but nonetheless, uh, we can't prevent an heir from bringing a case in court and then having to litigate the case for many years.
3: And the one thing, uh, getting back to planning early, the one thing I've seen in a lot of cases. That stops a will contest or whatever if somebody did a prior will very similar, let's say, 10 years earlier. You know, if somebody did a will when they were 65 and they change it when they're 75, maybe when they have diminished capacity, but it's still pretty much the same will. Let's say there's a no-good nephew or whatever who wasn't in the will when they were 65 and is not in the will when they're 75. Well, that nephew has very little legal ground. You know, Because he wasn't in the the will when the person was 65, he wasn't in the will when the person was 75, he has very little legal ground. And that's one case where you might get a judge to dismiss the case outright if there are two wills with that person not being named, especially if they're more than a few years apart. But even somebody, if you want to prevent a will contest, one of the things you can do is do your will over, make some changes, and do a will at separate times. Because each will has to be dealt with in court. We had a case some years back. In fact, we just saw one of the family members, a granddaughter. Um, We had a will that was signed on October 31st of whatever year it was, and maybe it was about 30 years ago. And that will was denied probate. But there was an identical will signed October 30th because what happened was the lawyer hand-wrote a will in person at the time, then typed it up got it signed the next day, but it was signed on October 30th, the handwritten will. October 31st was the typed will. The October 31st will was thrown out. There was a nurse who said maybe the person didn't know what they were doing, and that kind of threw a question of fact in. The jury made their decision. But then we had another will dated the day before. That's still a separate trial, and nothing is going to discourage a, um objectant. Somebody objects to the will more than if they have to win two trials, because one, no lawyer is going to take two, ordinarily is going to take two trials on a contingency, you know, which is one reason a lot of times we sign our trust and wills on different days.
8: Yeah, it can't hurt to have multiple wills done over time to have a will and a trust done on separate dates. It makes it that much more difficult for anybody to come in and try to invalidate that plan, to try to disrupt that plan. Um, Again, we can't prevent uh, somebody from trying, but we could make it extremely difficult. We could make it extremely um, unattractive for any attorneys to take that case on contingency basis. And what that means is that anybody who wants to challenge the documents would need to find an attorney and pay them at an hourly rate um, out of their own pocket. Right. So uh, unless they really believed strongly that they had a good case and uh, they might actually need to have some fact in their favor um, in order to retain an attorney, pay him hourly, and prepare to pay him hourly for years. During litigation and especially having knowledge that there's multiple documents that they will have to litigate and have multiple trials in order to get to their ultimate goal, which is to invalidate the entire
3: estate plan. Yeah, and, you know, and, and when we start talking about litigation, 40 years ago – and I mean not that I was involved in a lot of lit- litigation 40 years ago, but 40 years ago, it was a lot simpler. All this discovery, you had it, but you really didn't. A lot of times you would just have a will. Somebody would object to it, go to a conference – Maybe eventually the judge would call a trial and the matter gets settled. But now you have all this discovery going over financial records, medical records. And of course, there's a lot more medical records you can pick up now than you used to be. And there's a lot more financial records. Everything's on a computer and you can pick up a lot of the stuff that you, let's say, didn't necessarily easily pick up years ago. But litigation has gotten a lot more complicated Plus, not only that, you know, 40 years ago, I'm not saying people didn't do trust, but a lot of people didn't do trust. So everything was in the probate estate. So every the cards were on the table, the finances and everything else. But it's it's gotten a lot more complicated, which means it's gotten a lot more expensive. And to litigate a will contest today is, is time-wise. I mean, obviously, dollars, you can't compare $1985 to $2023, $20, but... Just the time involved, is it takes so much longer to do something today. And the court schedules are crazy. used to be one attorney would handle the, the, the referee or the uh, legal assistant would handle the case and have pretty good control of the case, know the parties, know the facts. But today it just seems like it's, the volume is so great. Yes, Beth?
5: I have a stupid question. Is it possible these things just keep going on until there's no estate?
8: If the state is small well, enough,
3: it's well, uh, possible. Uh, what what estate was that in uh Charles Dickens? Oh.
5: <laughs> then it went
3: on for a hundred years or something like that and the lawyers kept getting paid fees See? out of the state. There you go. There
5: I mean go.
3: it it could it certainly could get to the point where uh the you're paying so much in legal fees it's almost not worth the battle. Yes, that could be that could be the case. I mean, even the case I talked about, I I think the law system told me that the objectant in that case, who won the first one and lost the second one, paid more in legal fees than he would have gotten in intestacy. And, you know, it's just, it's mind-blowing, but sometimes people are willing to fight over principle.
8: Well, it's kind of similar to family law, because uh, some of these disputes are caused by people really believing that... um, the documents are invalid, or that the person, the decedent, executed them when they didn't have the proper capacity, or whatnot, that we discussed. But sometimes the reason for bringing a suit, or you know, trying to invalidate the documents, has to do with a personal animus right. uh, against the person who is receiving a great inheritance, or you know, the entire inheritance. So a lot of the times, that's another cause for why these cases take such a long time because we don't have. Two parties acting rationally, two right, parties that are right. counting cents and dollars versus, you know, cost and benefit. <laughs> you know, sometimes you have people that are trying to win one over their estranged cousin or right. sibling that they feel has done them wrong in some way.
5: Right. Yeah. Well, listen, it, it's, it, sometimes even in here we've seen it, people sit across the table and it's like they just hate each other. And, you know, you're not going to move anybody, you know. And it really it gets to the point where they can't even be in the same room with each other. Now
3: um, I know some of you are out there saying, "Well, can't you do a will that can't be contested?" What if you put in your will that if you can, if somebody contests the will, they get nothing? Well, yeah, you can do that. But the other side of that coin, if you do that clause, what we call an interorum clause, you got to give the person something. Like let's say somebody has a two million dollar estate or a million dollar estate. They have a house and let's say they have two children they want to leave everything to one child. You could put a clause in there I leave $100,000 to my son, but if he contests the will he gets nothing. In effect it wouldn't be quite written that way. And yes, you can do that, but and, and most of the time if the the, the child has a problem usually is short of money because there's something there whether they have a problem with drugs, alcohol, um
5: gambling, gambling anything. or whatever. Yeah.
3: And you know, and, and if the executor, through a lawyer or otherwise, says, "Here's your check for a hundred thousand dollars," sign a receipt. And in a lot of cases, they will sign that receipt. And not only that, if they're getting good legal advice, uh, and they go to a lawyer, and the lawyer says, "Listen, you got a hundred thousand dollars tax-free cash. Your check. Why fight? And you know, maybe, maybe we can get two hundred thousand dollars years later, but you're going to have to pay legal fees, and it's going to take years." if they're getting the honest advice, then yeah, they're gonna they're gonna take that. Yeah. Sometimes people are led astray. Some people have grudge matches or whatever. But in my experience, if if you put it something, but the gift to the person or the bequest to the person has to be large enough so it hurts that they don't take it. Like five thousand dollars ordinarily is not going to do it. You know, you're gonna have to say here's a hundred thousand, fifty thousand. It depends on the size of the estate. But it's got to be enough that the person is really going to regret contesting the will. And and the higher the number, the better. And that's one of the ways we can stop a will contest. The other way is we have wills with similar numbers or whatever at different times. And that's one of the ways because no lawyer takes it on a contingency. And, of course, one of the best ways to do it is to do a will, do a trust, then do a will, and then the person has to win three lawsuits. So – we're running. We're kind of running out of time right now. Uh-oh. Michael, you want to just tell them where they can call if they somebody has an email question. To-
4: sure. If somebody wants to email us a question, you're going to want to send that to askmikeconnors at gmail dot com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail dot com. Connors spelled C O N N O R S. That's C O N N O R S. And we'll try to get back to you. Um, certainly, we'll get back to you if it's you, you know. It may not be right on air if it's something private, but in any event, you might hear your question on air, all things depending.
3: Now, a few people, we just finished our seminars. A few people asked, when's your next set of seminars? To be honest with you, the next set of seminars are probably going to be next year because we usually don't do seminars during the winter months because it's just, if there's bad weather, it becomes a disaster. But you can get on YouTube and get, it's slightly outdated, but 90% of it is correct our where, where can you get our seminar on YouTube
4: yeah if you head to youtube.com and just enter into the search bar Connors and Sullivan video seminar you should see a nice long video right there at the top with dad on it and that'll be it'll give you a brief on a lot of the things you're going to want to know walking into estate planning obviously it doesn't solve your issues for you you have to come in for that but it might give you an idea of things that you need to start thinking about
3: alright well thank you for listening to the show this week we'll be back here at the same time and places next week thank you Eugene
5: bye bye
4: thank you
2: We are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this all the way. We, are gathered, we are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this all the way. Hey, Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's Lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500.
1: The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC